Okay, you've got your Bible. Uh, we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 30. God speaks it to us, uh, speaks it to us read, speaks it to us uh, preached. Uh, we wanted to work by his spirit through his word, so let's ask him to be at work. Our great God and Heavenly Father, please do tune our heads, hearts, and lives to eternal realities. Please, as you speak, uh, reform and remake us, that we would not stay as we are, but rather that we would love more and more, have a love that abounds more and more with knowledge, with that total clarity about what's good, that we would be able to see and know and choose what's excellent so that we'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory and praise as the one who works it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. If we can come as we are, why should we ever be any different? If we can come as we are, why should we ever be any different? A lot of this passage we just read shows us three people who became very different. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. They're worth imitating. We'll look and see some of how they're worth imitating. But I want to spend most of the time today on two commands. The command in verse 12, work out your own salvation. And the command in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 12 isn't the start of something new. It continues. Therefore, the first word. So let me remind you of where we're up to in what Paul has been saying. From halfway through chapter 1, Paul described his life, uh, described his life, which is so centered on the gospel's work, that he rejoiced when his imprisonment for Christ served to advance the gospel. He weighed up life and death with complete confidence that departing to be with Christ would be far better for him, and at the same time, the loving desire to live longer because continuing on alive and preaching the gospel would be better for them. Paul followed that with uh, chapter 1, verse 27, the one essential thing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's talking to people who are convinced that the gospel is good and true, and he's saying live as if Christ's gospel is good and true. Verse 28, if there's any truth and goodness to the gospel, if there's, if any of you are any better off suffering for the gospel rather than giving up on it completely, if refusing to be intimidated says anything to your intimidators about salvation and their need for it, if the truth of the gospel matters to anyone in any way, stand firm. Stand firm together, defending and confirming the gospel and refusing to be intimidated. In chapter 2, verse 1. If the gospel has produced any real fruit in your lives, if it's produced any encouragement, comfort, fellowship in the spirit, assurance of affection, have the same mind. Love, agreement with each other. Have a mind that decides and does what's better for others, not just what's better for you. 
Have a mind shaped by what you see in the Son of God who did what's better for you. He did what's better for you when he left glory to serve you, to serve us. By dying the death and experiencing the judgment we deserve. Have the mind shaped by what you see in God the Son who is now exalted and before whom every knee will one day bow to the glory of God the Father. So chapter 2 verse 12, therefore, therefore beloved, therefore Christian brothers and sisters, because Jesus is Lord and you are among the people who will bow and confess that he is Lord, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live as if you will one day bow with clear sight of Christ's glory. That's how they began. That's how they began their Christian lives. When Paul was there preaching, when Paul visited them again, when Paul's heard, heard about them, and he calls them to continue working out their salvation while he is away. What does it mean to work out our salvation? Well, look at verse 12. It's a long sentence, but just take the, take the as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation. Working out your salvation, well, he's really talking about obedience. The main category Paul gives us for what you working out your salvation involves is obedience. Obeying God. Now, it's got to be said, he he doesn't say work for your salvation. Salvation is a gift. It's something Jesus worked for. He died to bring forgiveness. The promise of the gospel is forgiveness and eternal life for everyone and anyone who comes in trust. And those who come trusting God who promises forgiveness are immediately, immediately forgiven and accepted and loved as his children. Saved. No one can work to earn their salvation from God. God simply gives it. We are to come as we are. And everyone who receives salvation must work out their salvation. Now, if you're curious but not yet committed, you need to understand that's what you're considering committing to. If you've already gone all in with Jesus as rescuer and ruler, well, we need this clarity, don't we? You came and you continue to come as you are, but you cannot and must not stay as you are. You came and continue to come as you are, but you cannot and must not stay as you are. You must work out your salvation. You must obey. All those times, actually, when you have already obeyed God because you trust him, you have been working out your salvation. And you've been working it out because, well, God has been working in you. Back in chapter 1, Paul thanked God uh, for what God had already done in the Philippians. And he asked God to keep working it in them. 
He asked God to fill and overfill them with love that knows uh, how things really are, that decides and does what's best. He described God as the one who began a good work in you and will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Here in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, work. He says to people who he's talked to about God working in them, he says, you, work. And in verse 13, he he tells us why we should work. Why we should work at being obedient. Because, same thing again. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work at obeying God because God is working in you. He's doing a deep work. He's working in your head, your heart, your life. God himself is working in his people. He works at us in the level of our wills, at the level of our doing. He works at how we see reality, at the decisions we make, at the things we do. God himself gives us the will and the determination to obey. God himself gives us the power to act and to follow through on that determination. Now, we could take that as a reason to kick back and leave God to it. Or we could take it as a reason to despair if uh, what's been happening recently is minimal progress. But we mustn't. Paul mentions it here as an incentive and as a motivation. It's not a reason to kick back. It's not a reason to despair. Knowing God works is a reason for determined commitment to daily obedience. Knowing God works is a reason for determined commitment to daily obedience, aiming to please and honor him. And knowing who works and and what his plan and purpose is, it should clear away any half-heartedness in that. It's not okay to come as we are and never be any different. Let's say here, work with fear and trembling. Because whatever, wherever you might have thought your life was heading, whatever priorities might keep pushing in, the living and true, loving and holy God has a plan and a purpose for you. His plan for you is to make you pure and blameless. His plan for you, Monday to Sunday, is to live with desires and decisions and words and actions which please and honor him. So every day, you're either working with what God is working in you and what God's purpose is for you, or you're working against the infinitely powerful and perfectly good and completely holy God. Bring that thought to mind next time. Bring that thought to mind next time you're pushing what you know about what he wants for you to the back of your mind. Bring it to mind that he is at work in you And work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the first command. The second command is verse 14. 
do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then verse 15, 16 spell out the purpose, the, the reason for doing all things without grumbling or disputing. So do that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Look at that. Look at that again. Look at how much hangs on not grumbling and disputing. By avoiding grumbling and by not disputing and arguing, they'll become blameless and innocent with no faults. Children of God who look like children of God, not some misshapen imitation. They'll shine in contrast among people with crooked and twisted heads, hearts, and lives. They'll shine in contrast among people who disobey in among them and holding out and holding on to the word of life so that in the end Paul will rejoice and boast in what Christ did through him that his word has not been sorry that Paul's work has not been vain and empty you see how much hangs on not grumbling or disputing like what Paul says at the end of verse 16 there it implies that something else will happen if they do grumble and dispute. That Paul's work with them, his gospel work with them, will end up being vain and empty in the day of Christ. Now, it can only be empty effort if, at the end, they are judged not saved, condemned, and not forgiven. A lot hangs on not grumbling or disputing. That's because Paul is talking about not grumbling against God and not disputing or arguing with his commands. I think the enormity of what hangs on the command already starts to send you there. But let me show you where Paul is getting some of the words that he uses. Grumbling is what Israel did days after they experienced God's salvation. God brought them out of, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Exodus 15 starts with Moses and the people of Israel singing words like, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. But before the end of Exodus 15, Israel is grumbling against God and Moses. There's no water. The next chapter... There's no food. The next chapter again, there's no water. Did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? Grumbling against Moses and against the Lord. Same sort of thing in Numbers chapter 14. When God says through Moses, go in and take the land I promised, I'll give it to you. And they grumble. Who would have been better off dying in Egypt? Why is the Lord leading us into slaughter? They are the people Moses had in mind later when he proclaimed God's faithfulness in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and said, They have dealt corruptly with him, with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. 
They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now Moses is talking about uh, disobedient Israel, those ones saved out of Egypt who grumbled at first, who argued against God when he said, go into the land, and in the end did not enter. They were rejected. Paul uses Moses' words in verse 15 of, to talk to saved Philippians and tell them, do not grumble against God or argue against his commands. If they hear God's words spoken by his servants and tremble before God rather than grumbling against him, they will be children of God without blemish. In the midst of disobedient people from Israel and from all nations, who grumble in unspoken displeasure at God's commands, who argue openly and explain how his way steals any opportunity they might have for genuine thriving. Paul says, don't be like them. Don't become like them. Don't be like those ancients who did with grumbling or who disputed and didn't do and were refused entry to the promised land. Later in that same chapter of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 and 47, Moses said to the children of the rejected grumblers and disputers, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no vain or empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. And Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying his gospel holds out heaven itself. He's saying, hear God, speak his word, treasure it, hold it as if your eternal life depends on it. Because it does. Don't grumble or argue against God or those who speak God's word to you. Uh, When you read the Bible, when you hear it read, uh, when you hear his word preached, when, when a brother or sister points out an uncomfortable implication, when your desire drives in one direction and our great and awesome God says, no, not that way, your best good and your true thriving is somewhere else. Don't grumble or argue against God. Or those who speak God's word to you. In the rest of what we read today, Paul mentions some models, some people worth imitating. God has worked in them. And seeing how God has worked in them helps us see our way forward. Not imitating the things that don't matter, but recognizing and honoring and pursuing the things that do. We see what obedience looks like. What it means, some of what it means to work out our salvation. To conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to highlight a few things in this section. First Paul. In chapter 1 we saw him weighing what's best for their joy and progress above what's best in his experience. Uh, We saw him trust God and not grumble in the midst of his imprisonment. 
Here in verse 17, Paul's joy is in their progress. It's a strange little picture he uses here of their faith-formed life and service as the feature sacrifice, the main course sacrifice, the meat. And Paul's part in speaking God's word to them, that God might work in them, it's like the, the wine that's poured out on the side. Uh, the secondary, the minor thing among the big sacrifice offered. And he's content and rejoicing that he got to be part of it like that. And verse 18, he calls them to imitate him, uh, to rejoice in God's work, and their opportunity to be part of his sacrifice. And the second person worth imitating is Timothy. Uh, verse 19 onwards. Uh, out of all the Christian people uh, around Paul and Rome, Timothy is the one he's keen to send. Why does he want to send him? Because verse 21, he looks to Christ's interest, not his own. Adam has his own plans. Betty only really cares about her own family. Charles, well, he only likes to do things where there's a clear win-win. Denise's life, well, it's too full to serve anyone. Eric, well, he'll do anything for anyone, but just don't expect him to ever mention Jesus. Timothy doesn't put himself first. And he cares about what Jesus cares about. He wants what Jesus wants. And what Jesus wants is, verse 20, our welfare. Verse 22, our welfare as it's promoted through gospel speech. Jesus is interested in saving and keeping and maturing and equipping and sending his people. And that's Timothy's interest. It's what he pursues by serving with the gospel. Even when it it compromises his comfort and convenience, his safety, his security, his pleasure, his prestige, he pushes on because his interest is Christ's interest. God has worked in Timothy such that he wills and does for God's good pleasure. He's someone worth imitating. And so it's Epaphroditus, verse 25 onwards. Uh, Paul mentions him partly to explain why he sent Epaphroditus back sooner than expected. Uh, We'll glance back later when we we get to that bit. Uh, But he's mentioned here rather than later when Paul talks about the support sent with Epaphroditus. Because Epaphroditus is an example of someone God has worked in. Another person worth imitating. Look at his attitude. Just look at his attitude to his suffering. Verse 26. When he was ill, his big concern was them. He's concerned about them worrying about him being ill. Verse 30, he's willing to die for the work of Christ. He's another person with the mind of Christ. Another person who seeks the things Christ Jesus is interested in. A follower of Jesus who is willing to die for the advance of the gospel. He has the same heart as Paul who desired to live a little longer in order to serve, see the gospel advance. The same heart as Timothy, whose gospel heart pursued the things Jesus is interested in. They're people to imitate. There are others too, as we look around Sojourn. There are others too, as we look around more widely, at who God has been working in. Seeing them helps us see what we're aiming at. Well, really, what God is aiming at. 
as he continues towards completing the good work that he has begun. Seeing them gives us a clear understanding of what we are progressing towards and past as God continues towards completion the work that he's begun. They help us see what God is working in us. They help us see what living uh, and, and doing, desiring and doing for his good pleasure looks like. They bring into focus the depth and the diversity of living as if the gospel is good and true. Because we're completely convinced it is. How much their priorities are defined by Jesus' priorities. How much their desires and ambitions and delights and distresses have been rewritten as they have worked out their own salvation with fear and trembling. As they've responded to God not by grumbling or arguing, but by holding holding firmly to the word which is eternal life. Let us see what we should change towards. But if we can come as we are, why should we ever be any different? Why not just keep doing our desires? Well, you've seen it, haven't you? Because God wants you to be different. Because God is at work in you. His purpose for you is for your head, heart and life to be so in tune with what's really real that you desire and decide and do the things which please him. To be humble before him, to tremble at his word, to believe what he says is true, to trust what he says he'll do, to obey what he claims is good. I think that means that every time we hear him speak, we must leave at least a little bit different. But sometimes also radically different. With a whole new perspective, with, with a whole new confidence, uh, with an area of life we just hadn't seen or thought about, but realizing we must change. And when you catch yourself beginning to grumble or even argue about what's best for you, that, that, that God says go here, but you think it would be much better to go there, don't. Don't grumble or argue. Hold firmly to the word of life. Hold on to it as if your eternal life depends on it. Because it does. And hold on to it like you need God to hold on to you. Because you do. Pray. Ask him to work by his spirit through his word. Ask him to work in you. And ask him to work in us. Let's pray. A great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your reliable word. Thank you that it's reliable because you are reliable. That it's good because you are good. That it's true because you are true. Father, please do make us humble before you. That rather than grumbling or, or arguing towards something other than what you say, 
that will trust you, the God who speaks. Please cause us to work out our salvation in obedience towards you, in confidence and your promises, in belief in what you speak. Father, please do continue the good work that you've begun. And Father, please use us in service to one another as those who speak your word, who call one another to faithful obedience, who remind one another to tremble before you and argue with you. Father, we ask that we would be in the midst of those who reject you, who argue that true human thriving is somewhere other than with you, that we would be more and more blameless and innocent. Your children without blemish, holding on to the word of life and holding the word of life out to those around us. Father, please work these things for your glory and the glory of your Son, in whom we ask it. Amen.